0: Thank you, Mary. I am Pat, and I am an alcoholic. (laughs) By the grace of God, by using the 12 steps and the program of recovery in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol since the 13th of April of 1966, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, And I hope I don't burst out (laughs) crying. I really have looked forward to being here Uh, for a couple of years as a matter of fact I couldn't come for one reason or another and this year it was it was to be my third weekend in a row out of the office and they said oh I don't know you can't do that and I said oh you don't understand (laughs) I better do that (laughs) Um, so I really am I'm grateful to be in in Arkansas and do you know this thing over here that says I'm an Arkansas traveler is signed by the Secretary of State and it, I'm still free <laughs> I'm not locked up someplace <laughs> I could still travel I, w- <laughs> um, I was always afraid of getting something signed by the Secretary of State I am I was born in New York City and uh, I lived there until the day I graduated from high school. When I was 17, I took off with some people I'd met at a party. I'd started drinking when I was a a kid, a little kid. My sister and I actually started drinking together, emptying the glasses on the tables uh, in the living room. And uh, that was on West 20th in New York City. And uh, between 10th and 11th, we had lived on 8th Street. We had lived on 4th Street. We moved 12 different times before I was 17. My parents loved me dearly, um, but there were other things that were important in their lives as well. I felt the love more than I felt any of the other things. And since I've gotten old enough to stop and think about the other things from time to time, it's worried me, but (laughs) at the time it didn't worry me a bit. I felt very loved. My sister and I spent a long time living with our grandparents, and um, that was in New Jersey, across the river. Uh, actually, I live in New Jersey now. I work at the General Service Office, but I live in Jersey City, New Jersey, in a renovated firehouse. I have uh, six great big rooms, and it's, uh, it's, it's not... I never thought I would live in a renovated firehouse anywhere. Um, but certainly not in Jersey City, New Jersey. My poor dad is probably spinning in his grave thinking of me living over there with the, all the chemical dumps in Jersey City. But um, at any rate, we, we, uh, I started drinking as a kid. Uh, when I was 11 or 12, I, uh, I, I drank by my I started, I looked back and I was drinking by myself, and I was trying to think the other day why it w- would be. That I would wait until everybody was out of the room or out of the kitchen um, to go in and get the booze that nobody was paying much the dusty bottle of vermouth in the back of the refrigerator uh, I've drank the, bis- the bitters because I couldn't find anything else that was low um, the four roses in the back of the cupboard um, behind the kitchen over the kitchen sink now why would I do that in a household where uh, alcohol was I mean, it was, it flowed, it was part of our lifestyle, it was no big deal. But something way down deep inside of me, I really wanted to be alone when I drank. And I was, as I say, 11 or 12 when I started, and I made sure I was by myself. Um, and I had, as I said, happy. Uh, now, I wasn't from a religious home. Uh, actually, it was just the opposite. My dad had had a uh, a falling out with a Roman Catholic priest when he was 11 years old and uh, he punched the priest in the face and that was the end of his <laughs> seminary career because he was going to be the oldest he was the oldest in his family he was supposed to be the priest the Roman Catholic priest in the family so therefore that's how I got born and um, Wade never <laughs> went to church uh, in any kind of a church um, I can remember thinking about it and uh, wondering when I was a little kid when I was nine, my mother decided my sister and I ought to be baptized. I never, She never could explain to me why on earth we should be baptized, but we have pictures of my sister and I with our little white dresses and our hair bows up here and knee socks and Band-Aids <laughs> all over. Um, but all I got out of that was something about blood and lambs, and I couldn't figure out what that had to do with God, and uh, so I just walked on by. What I really enjoyed about it was being... Alone, early in the morning, walking to church. Um, so when I, this is a little kid uh, growing up in New York City, spending time in New Jersey. I went to the High School of Music and Art in New York City, which uh, is was at the time at 135th Street and Convent Avenue, um, and which was is still in the middle of Harlem. It was just part of the neighborhood. It was part of where my life. Uh, I didn't think anything about it. Um, When I was, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd get something to drink and I'd go walking out down by the river. Um, I wasn't afraid. I just got up and went. Um, As I said, I left New York with people that I'd met at a party. I had a scholarship to go to a fine arts school called Bard College on the Hudson, and they brought me that scholarship, and I, I didn't know what that meant. Nobody in my family had graduated from high school. I, did, I thought it was sort of an award. You know, they say, you're just doing great artwork. We're so proud of you. So here's a scholarship. It was like a, like, like a, uh, a pat on the back. I didn't realize I could have gone to Bard College for full tuition and full uh, room and board. Instead, I went off to a party, <laughs> and I think, about, <laughs> I think about this poor guy that I was dating when I was in high school. It's a good thing he was in the Air Force, because he got small doses of me. <laughs> and he was actually in Beeville, Texas, when, uh, when I was in high school. He came up, and uh, I, by the time I was a senior, and he was visiting back in, in the city, um, we would go to parties. And we would start out just fine, only I would wind up out the back door, down by the river again, under the table, weeping and moaning or laughing, and I was totally unpredictable. He didn't know what I was going to do, and he said there was only one thing that he wished about me, and that if I just wouldn't drink, I'd be fine. And I said, well, then I can do that. I just won't drink, and I, parentheses, why you're here, (laughs) when you're around. And uh, because I thought it was, uh, it was just a matter of time before I figured out how to control this stuff, um, I left, as I said, went to uh, the Catskills with these people I'd met at the party the day after high school. I had all of my belongings in a duffel bag. Uh, I had a brand new pink sweatshirt, which I wore, and I had everything that I owned in this little duffel bag, and we went off in the car to the Catskills, and I worked there. And uh, I had started blacking out. I had started um, seeing creatures that other people didn't see. And I had a hard time when, at um, uh, the end of the summer came, um, everybody was going someplace and I didn't have any place to go. I sure enough didn't want to go back to New York. I'd spent all that time trying to get out. I sure didn't want to go back. And so I went with them to college at Oswego, New York. Um, I got there, and I got online with all of them, and I stood in that line, and when it was my turn, Dean Witten said, what's your name? And I said, Patty Johnson. And he looked at his list, and he said, I don't have a Patty Johnson on my list. And I said, well, that's because I just got here. <laughs> of course you don't. I didn't have any idea at all about the process of, of uh, applying for a college or going through the whole procedure. He let me in. He put me into a cooperative house, so I had a place to stay, Um, and I had a job, and I had earned $2,000, which is a lot of money for 1955, um, that summer, waitressing in the Catskills. I I could pay my way. Um, I didn't go home. I didn't think about going home. In fact, I never went back. I never went home again. And I think about that from time to time. Um, I, uh, in the process of the next three years, my drinking, as you imagine, just continued to get worse. Uh, I lost more time. I passed. I got my... I went through and got all the... I, the worst course I ever had was a D in music because you had to go to the place this building that had pianos in it to practice pianos and I was just I couldn't stand it and I would go I would set out for the place to practice pianos and the place we called the library was at the foot foot of the hill and I just couldn't get past the bar which was uh, where I I wound up so I got a D in music Um, but I passed everything else um those were the days when you had to be in by a certain time i was uh i figured out how to get in uh even though the door was locked i could go in the back door i could go up the trellis out back i could just stay out um uh one night and and there were a lot of incidents i mean that but that at first seemed to be fun and about the uh, beginning of my um, junior year i was in we were uh, At a dance and it was late. Uh, Oswego is right up on Lake Ontario and and not far from the border of Canada. Um, We decided that since we were already out, uh, I don't know if anybody really made a decision, we were just out and we were going to go get breakfast in Canada. Uh, We had a bunch of, a keg of beer in the in the uh, trunk of the car and some bottles of bourbon in the in the car body itself and there were three people in the front and three people in the back and uh i'd been in two car wrecks before i'd gone through one windshield and wound up on the the trunk of a vw and uh the only thing i was worried about was bleeding on my camel hair coat (laughs) i've now got all these little park park scars in my face i wasn't worried at all about my the man who was driving or the guy driving in the pickup truck But we went up towards Canada, and as we drove, everybody went to sleep, apparently. I wasn't driving. I was in the back seat with uh, the man I had come with and another guy, and the two girls and the driver were up front. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear, oh, my God. And he is, I opened my eyes, and I looked, and I could see the bridge coming towards us. And um, so I ducked down, and I woke up, sometime later, I don't know when, with my face on the gas pedal, <laughs> which is kind of hard to do because the seat was on top of me. And I had mushed underneath that seat, and I was alive, and I scooched out and climbed over the people who were all half, a, half unco- or unconscious. They weren't conscious at all, and the guy that I was with was unconscious. Uh, they woke up, and he and I proceeded before we looked at the people in the car to empty the booze, to throw it out into the bushes, to get it out of the trunk. We climbed over bleeding people to get the booze out. And at the time, I thought, you know, well, they'll thank us for it. (laughs) We wound up, all of us in the hospital, Um, but it wasn't fun. It just wasn't fun. This guy had 67 stitches across his forehead. I had all this glass in my face. To say nothing of the bruises and the concussion and the girl with the with the sliced up face Um, it wasn't fun and we all knew it way down deep inside something was wrong but nobody knew what was wrong I mean we were what 18 years 19 years old Um, I was in the hospital got kicked out of school my dad came again for the third time got me back in school got me out of the hospital and then back in school and I decided the solution was to get married I didn't decide that right away but it seemed to me that what I needed was stability if I had somebody there all the time and I was drinking like a lady and I could drink at home and I didn't have to go out if I never got out I wouldn't wind up in all those places down halfway between Oswego and Rochester on the river I mean on the lake and here and there and so I decided that was what I would do. And bless his heart, um, I did. I got married. We were juniors in college, and uh, he didn't drink. He doesn't drink still. Um, and we lived in Buffalo. I finished school while he worked, and then he finished school while I worked. And I had a wonderful, one wonderful summer. I canned tomatoes. I cooked. I canned string beans. I had... Just everything was exactly the way it ought to be, and I thought, this is it. This is really it. I see. I knew this was the solution. Well, next thing I knew, I was on a bus headed for Lake George with my bottle and the Atlas Shrugged. Did you ever read that book? <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. It's about something about power, I believe. And I knew there was a way to have power over this life, if, if I could only figure out what it was. And I, that wasn't really what I'd intended. I'd screwed it up again. Um, and I was off. Uh, the long and short of it was that we decided, I heard the al lady this morning saying she made decisions and they went and <laughs> I, maybe he decided, I don't know, but anyway we headed for California. Buffalo was dying. We decided that Buffalo was the problem and my drinking was going to get better if we just were away from all the families. Of course I hadn't been home in all those years. Uh, but his family was there, so we head out for California. We had an Austin Healey 3000 with an electric fuel pump that had problems. So we, I pictured it, that we were leaving Buffalo and going down to California. And I would say, it's going to be all right, Bob, just hit this. You know, I'm sitting over there drinking my vodka and hitting the fuel pump to keep it going along as we went downhill. Well, you don't go all the way downhill to California. <laughs> but on the map, it looks like you're going from north to south. Um, so I kept reassuring him it was going to be all right. All we'd have to do really is coast. <laughs> and we'd save gas too. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, we, we stopped in Houston to visit my mother. And my stepfather and we got there and it was just wonderful we drove into Houston as we were driving in the Sun was shining you could see all the way through the buildings I mean you know like here are the buildings and skies on the other side it wasn't just this gray white stuff like in New York and uh, and I thought this is it this is wonderful we have found the place this is where the. this is where everything's going to be all right and, of course, it just kept on happening. We did stay there. I, um, and I, I at that point in time, I must have been 22. Um, that was 1961. Well, anyway, close to, I don't remember. Um, in fact, that's the whole point of this next 45 years. I don't remember. Um, I started, uh, my mother and I had the most wonderful relationship at that time. We sat and we drank and we had drank before and I had had a grand relationship with her. We could sit and talk, but when we weren't drinking, we could, there was nothing to talk about. I was angry at anything she had to say to me and I just didn't want to be around her at all. for whatever reason, doesn't make any difference. The point is, I was carrying resentment, which was festering, anger, which was festering, and I had never been honest enough to say, "This is what's going on." Well, I couldn't be. I couldn't look at me. Um, I, uh, I, 1962, our first child was born. Um, I'd begun to worry that maybe we couldn't have any children. I'd had a miscarriage, and uh, I really wanted children, and I way deep down inside thought, you know, if I just can have children, then everything will be all right. The solution is that, yes, we were married, and yes, I have a family, and yes, we have a house and a car, but the children will be the answer. Well, we, we had a child, and she was born in 62, um, I don't remember anything about the pregnancy. Uh, I remember going to the doctor, I remember riding to San Antonio about six months, I mean six weeks, eight weeks pregnant and being so miserable I could hardly stand it. Um, but that's all I remember about it. I don't remember her uh, being a baby. I have photographs. I can tell. You, I can show you those. Uh, I can show you the photographs of my second child. Um, I can tell you more about the creatures that came in through the air conditioning vents uh, when I was trying to not drink, I can tell you more about the, the music that I heard in the air conditioner and coming out of the, uh, uh, the turned-off radio that I can about their childhood. There was, um, and I thought that I was the only one. I, I hid the vodka. I hid it from myself. I hid it from other people. I put it in little, it's a wonderful thing, and I didn't realize how inventive I was till I sobered up. But a vinegar bottle is a great place to hide vodka, because you can get white vinegar, and vinegar can go in any room in the house. A little pint of vinegar, of course you have it in the kitchen. You can have a nice big jug of vinegar in the kitchen. You can have it in the refrigerator. You can have it in the cupboard, by the door, by the washing machine, where nobody can see. Um, And I could take that little pint of vinegar, and the little hole is exactly the right size. Not dribble it down (laughs) over my face, (laughs) my front. I could have the vinegar in the bedroom because you know you wash windows with vinegar. There's a good put a sponge next to it. Nobody's going to know the difference. Uh, And I hope nobody tried to use that vinegar, my vodka, (laughs) to wash windows. It's it was in the bathroom. It was in any in every room of the house. Um, I didn't do that uh, because it was I thought it was a nice idea it was because I had to have it it was not a matter of going and relaxing and being um, becoming more sociable or becoming uh, the life of the party or even easing pain it was simply a matter of if I didn't drink then all those creatures came to visit and all those voices and those uh, imaginary I guess they were imaginary. They were very real. I didn't dream when I was asleep, but I sure dreamed when I was awake. Um, and I had a little old lady who lived next door to me named Annie, and she was 86 years old. I used to think that uh, I, nobody knew I drank, um, and I realized towards the end of uh, uh, the time that we lived in that house that every morning when I was up at 4.30 drinking my vodka out of the bottle that was in the cupboard by the back door. She was in the kitchen looking out her kitchen window at me, (laughs) drinking my vodka. Um, She tried to help, but there wasn't anything that she could do. Now, about this time, sometime in there, I heard that there was a church in Houston that had live animals, and I had been going around to churches to try and find the answer. I figured if this I, well, first of all, I have to back up. There was a kitten that came and, and adopted me, or us, I suppose. And I took care of that kitten. It was yellow and it was fluffy, and I had uh, taken care of it, and it was sick. It got sicker and sicker. And I went out there one morning, and I would sit there by it with my little glass, and I would sit there and look at it, and I would think how much I loved it and how wonderful it was that God had sent this little creature to love me when nobody loved me at all and I had two babies in the other room that I was not taken care of, that people were bringing home in the middle of the afternoon, is this your child and, you know, here comes little Linda and Cynthia with no clothes on in the back door um, but I would sit there next to that kitten and think how sad it was that nobody loved me and, uh, I went out there one morning, and I opened the door of the laundry room, and, and I touched that. It was funny looking. And I touched it, and it was it all moved in one piece, you know. And it had died during the night. And I saw that little dead kitten body, and I felt the love that I felt. Now, mind you, I had never been to AA. I would never heard of a power greater than myself or a power outside of myself. And I knew that kitten had loved me, and I had loved it. And I knew that there was a power greater than myself, because that kitten was dead and gone. But that love was still there. And, And I looked around and I thought, well, now what does this mean? There's got to be something greater than me. I knew the vodka was. And so I started looking around. And I went to I went to the churches, and they would say, "Oh, honey, come on in here. We need you." They pin a cross on my my dress, and which was nine times out of ten not zipped up in the back. Or I was I didn't go sober a day. Um, And I would think, "You need me? (laughs) That's too bad. (laughs) I have nothing. You know, I'm coming to you for something." And I would walk away. Just it was useless. But I went to this one church where they said that there was uh, a a live manger scene at Christmas time and I thought now that's got to be all right if they have live animals at Christmas time it's got to be all right and I went over there of course it was uh, July uh, summertime at any rate hot of course it's always hot in Houston you don't know if it's July or November but it, uh, it was hot and there was no live manger scene and I don't remember anything about church but after church there was some people, they said, come upstairs for coffee. And I went upstairs and I heard this lady talking and she was, I, I can picture this room full of people, everybody standing up, milling around. And she's at the other end of the room just with this great big loud voice. And I, have, I thought she had a microphone. I know now she didn't. That's just the way she talks. Um, but she was telling her story. She was talking about being a drunk. She was talking about drinking at the Blue Moon Cafe. She was talking about Buffalo, New York, blacking out, being afraid to walk down the street for who, uh, fear of who she would see, never being able to look herself in the face, in the mirror. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, and she said that she didn't drink. And I went up and I said, how did you do that? What happened? How could you not drink? And this is a person who hadn't gone up and talked to anybody uh myself hadn't gone up and talked to anybody and she looked at me and she said oh honey just follow along behind me and i'll show you how (laughs) i thought oh boy what is this i didn't know what she was talking about sometime later and i don't know how later or how much later she and i were talking about it uh, about two weeks ago i don't know how long it was she I would. I, this was my washateria period of time. I went to the washateria every day. We didn't have a, a dryer, and uh, I would go to the. We didn't have a washer either, uh, and I would go to the wash. <laughs> I guess <used> the bathtub. <laughs> I'd go to the washateria and put the diapers in, and I'd stay there. Now you have to wash diapers, you have to rinse diapers, and you have to dry diapers. That's a lot for an alcoholic to remember when they're drinking. (laughs) I could tell when they were dry and clean. I couldn't tell if they were rinsed or if they were just washed. So we went through this whole routine. It took a long time at the washateria because I I couldn't remember. I'd run those things through until I finally figured out to move them from one to another. Um, Anyway, I went in there one day. And here's this lady sitting on top of the dryer over in the corner as I walked in. And it it was the lady from the church who'd been talking about being a drunk. She was sitting there reading a book. And my first thought was, well, she doesn't look real studious to me, but (laughs) what could I say? I hadn't read a book in years. And a magazine had come to the house called uh, Fortune Magazine or Harper's, and it had an article called AA Cult or Cure. And I had read far enough to see Alcoholics, and (laughs) I had stuffed it under all the other magazines. At any rate, she was there, and she said, Aha, there you are, and would you like to come over for a drink? And I thought, see, I knew she was all right. She's okay. And it turned out she lived right next door to that Uh, Washeteria. Excuse me, she did not live right next door. I found out two weeks ago, I've always said this all these years, she lived there. She didn't live there she lived close by and her friend lived there next door and she was getting ready to move away from this little neighborhood we were in which she lived in and she was she wanted to get talk to me so she had come to the washateria was waiting for me i went over there to her house right next door and and uh, sat down and she said what would you like and i said well vodka but it, gin or anything and she said well no honey i mean coffee or tea. (laughs) I said, oh, (laughs) Oh, well, water (laughs) in the middle of the day. Um. (laughs) So she proceeded to tell me her story. I couldn't tell you what she said. All I know is she took the time. She told me her story. She gave me a big book and she gave me a 12 and 12. And she then proceeded to move out of town, I guess. I know, she told me she did, because I still drank. I thought, aha, here I've got the big book, I've got the 12 and 12, now I can do it myself. I'll just read this big book, and I'll take care of it. And every once in a while, she would come by, and she would visit. She'd bring a whole two or three people with her. She'd come to the back door, never called ahead of time, and she would come into the kitchen. She always had a little stack of these cute little magazines, that had grapevine on the front. There were always stories about alcoholics in there. She'd leave them on the table, and she'd say, well, Howard, and she'd go over and fix coffee, and she'd be laughing. She said, I scared her sometimes, um, because she didn't know what I was talking about. I was telling her about these people that came to visit me through the vents. Um, (laughs) But she was real. She and her friends, they were doing something about a grapevine play, And they were doing something about a traditions play. I didn't know what on earth they were talking about. All I know is they were coming to visit me. And I was, I wanted so much for them to come and I just dreaded for them to come. Because I would have to show them. They would see I was still drinking. I hadn't figured it out yet. And uh, so they would come in, they'd make, she'd make a pot of coffee and sit down and I would drink my drink and she'd be drinking the coffee. She'd say, well, how are you doing, honey? And I'd say I'm just fine and she'd say are you having a problem with your drinking and I'd say well a little and she'd say would you like some help and I'd say oh no I think I can handle it now now that you've been here now that you've brought this magazine now that you've on and on and on now that you've done this now I can handle it and I really thought I had to do that myself somehow I had to do it to get good or right or sober so I could get cleaned up and come to AA. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know there were meetings. Um, She came over and over, and, you know, five years slipped by in this way. Um, Another child was born. Um, Another child was born. Three little girls, and the last one was born in uh, 1966, February 25th. They brought her to me in the hospital, and my, my right arm had been numb for years. Uh, my left arm was numb all the way up to here, uh, and I didn't understand it. I, was, uh, I kept on trying to do the right thing, and, uh, and I could not not drink. There was a period of time in there where um, I really, um, that whole period of time, I, is lost as far as I'm concerned. Those children's early years are gone. I had, um, they brought the baby to the hospital, to me in the hospital, and set her on my lap. and I said, uh, You'll have to take her away because uh, I can't feel her. All I could do was see that she was in my arms. My hands couldn't feel her, and I knew if I tried to hold her, I would drop her. And I was so sick of saying, I won't ever drink again. Um, I just didn't even want to hear myself say it. Bob sure enough didn't want to hear me say it. I went home from the hospital, and I just way down deep inside, you know, I kept thinking I'd hit bottom. I'd felt the, the worst, the, the the emptiest I could feel, and I got home, and uh, and I knew that there wasn't any place lower to go inside of myself. Uh, And I'd read in the big book about this business of of coming to a point inside of ourselves where there is a a point of of no return, that we do find a power within ourselves uh, that will help us to stay sober, to not take that first drink. And I thought for sure I'd come to that point. The only thing was My husband's service manager came over. He had a six-pack, and he was there to celebrate the birth of our third daughter. And uh, he said, how about a beer? And I said, well, what about a beer? You know, I just couldn't imagine anything that would be harmful about drinking one beer. I thought about it, thought about it hard. And I took the beer, and I can remember drinking it and cheers, you know, and all this, starting it out. And uh, that was... uh, it must have been the 29th of February or something and the next thing it's like I turned around and I'm standing in the kitchen looking at my refrigerator and I looked at the table I was in a completely different I was dressed differently everything was different and the tab- the uh, newspaper on the table said April 13th and I just was all of a sudden I you know I had had blackouts before that had lasted for hours and over a night and into the next day, but never, never for that long. Uh, I ran around to see if the kids were still there, and they were, but that brand new newborn baby was six weeks old. And I looked out the kitchen window. We lived in Houston, and when you look out the kitchen window in Houston, you can't see the Gulf of Mexico, but I could. (laughs) And I was swimming in it. It was bourbon, and I was drinking as I swam. And then I was back in the kitchen, and I looked at the counter, and there a great huge hole opened up in the counter. And I was on a slide going down into this deep black hole, and I remembered something Patty had said. She said, Honey, this elevator goes all the way to the bottom, and at the bottom is death or insanity. And if you ever have a chance to get off, get off. And I was, then I'm standing back in the kitchen, And I went to my phone book. Something happened that day. Something happened inside of me that linked me up with you. What she had said to me all those years before and before all those years, coming back again and again, making those 12-step calls, making those calls, something came back to me. And I was as drunk as I could be. I had a glass of vodka in my hand by the counter. And I called and I talked with a man, a girl named, I didn't, I don't know where I got these phone numbers anyway. This man said, um, his name was Mark, and he said, um, it's still Mark. He said, uh, (laughs) um, can you go 45 minutes without a drink? We can be there in 45 minutes. And second spiritual awakening, I said yes didn't even cross my mind to say no, I couldn't. I said yes, I can. And I, I guess that 45 minutes is still going on right this minute. Those people came. They spent the day with me. Those ladies told them about themselves. I didn't drink. When they left that night, they said, we're going home to fix dinner for our husbands. You're going to fix dinner for yours. And you're going to tell him where you're going. And they told me how to get there. And I drove for the first time in years over to Chimney Rock group at Holy Ghost Church on Chimney Rock, and that I walked in twenty five minutes late I couldn 't find anything i mean i was i didn't make i didn't care I, it was hard for me to find it, um, but I just knew that I had to get there. I walked in and I sat in the back, just like I sat back over here this morning listening to our friend talking, and I thought, you know i I'm at home. For the first time in my life, I walked into a room and I knew that there was something there that I had to have in order to survive. And it wasn't about anything that had ever been done to me. It wasn't about, and it isn't today, about anything other than the fact that I have a disease called alcoholism which just simply kills people. Alcoholics die Of alcoholism unless there is this 180 degree turn which is comes about by using the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous Um, and I can turn that around at any given point today I choose not to and I haven't for all these days Um, the gifts that I've been given are just amazing just amazing. The mother that I hated and was so angry at. Now, I went through the steps. I have to say, uh, I went through the steps with uh, with my sponsor. My first sponsor was a man, is a man. Uh, he and his wife, an Al-Anon lady, uh, are, were, as a matter of fact, the first weekend in July. I walked into the little church in um, LaGrange, Texas, where my daughter, my oldest daughter, was getting married and I was standing in the back waiting to go, you know, the mother of the bride waiting to be the last one to sit down and I looked up, and here's this little funny old bald head, and I looked and there's Mark, there's Mary Lou, they drove out there from Houston to LaGrange, and those are not young people anymore, I thought they were old then, but <laughs> I'm older than that now, <laughs> Um But he was my first sponsor because there wasn't a woman who'd had any amount of sobriety in that group. There simply wasn't. Patty moved out in the country to Derry-Ashford Road. Um, Vera was there. She was sober 30 days, and she and I were twins, the twins. Um, And we hung around together. We hung on to each other for dear life. Uh, But Mark was our sponsor, and we went through the steps with him, at about six months, I guess, or seven months, I said, I told Vera that I was getting a little uncomfortable, and I thought I was going to have to do something. And I told Mark about it. I said, you know, I'm sitting around the table at our little discussion meeting in uh, at Chimney Rock Group, and all I can notice is that the, you know, the guys sit at the table with their arms out on the table like this. And I said, all I'm concentrating is these hairy arms. I got to get a woman sponsor. <laughs> And, and Mark showed, pointed out the fact that I could have a sponsor that didn't live close by. And so Patty is certainly the one who who is uh, is that to this day. I also had the opportunity and have had the opportunity to share back and forth um, with her in a way that uh, I was able to... In these last two weeks ago, when she was down visiting me, she came for a whole week. And uh, Patty and I had a time together that we never had had. All those other years, we had little bitty kids running around. She sobered up when she was 25. Um, now, what I was like and what happened. What happened, what happened is still going on. Um, what we were like. It doesn't say what I was like. It says what we were like. And I I told you what I was like, and I've always been able to identify with the drunk. I remember Joe uh, at the 24-hour club and a bunch of the people that he was talking about. Um, And it's always struck me that when I did make that first phone call, I asked, how come I couldn't sober up by myself? I had my big book. I had my 12 and 12. Why couldn't I work the steps and just do it by myself? And Patty said, honey, you just left out one little word. The first word of the first step is we. And it doesn't work if it's just you or it's just me. We can do together what you and I cannot do alone. Um, I told you about my oldest daughter's marriage last July. The baby that was six weeks old when I sobered up is living in Washington, D.C. She's graduated from college. I have to tell you the story about moving. When I was sober nine years, I, moved, I uh, decided, I mean, a lot went on besides that. Let's see. I just can't say it all. Anyway, I was sober nine years. I'd been divorced when I was three years sober. I had married again. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, you can be really crazy and not take a drink. <laughs> I did. I don't suggest anybody do it. If any young woman wants to talk to me about it, I'll tell her in all the gory details, but um, suffice it to say that it isn't necessary to take a drink, no matter how insane one gets. Um, At any rate, when I was sober nine years, I'd had a terrible uh, illness and and had some time to stop and think and uh, decided that it was time to, to leave Houston. My nest of AA was there. I could hardly bear the thought of leaving Mark and uh, Patty and all my group. This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two will continue in just a moment. Time, um, partly because I just, you know how you know when it's time, you've got to make a move. Um, and my kids were getting old enough to be in junior high. I couldn't picture them in those 2,000 person junior highs in Houston. And so, and I'd never lived in a little town in my whole life. And, and I needed, to, and I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go, I wanted to study art like I had never done before. And so I looked all through all these different schools and I chose Commerce, Texas. So really I wouldn't be an Aggie, I'd be an East Texas Lion. <laughs> Um, but I sold the house and I packed the kids, the uh, cats, three cats, a dog, a little sheep dog, and all of our suitcases and plants in a Pinto station wagon. <laughs> and we, mo- we left Houston on June 18th of 1975. And we started up, by the time we got to Huntsville, I thought, I just can't stand this. I looked back and the cats were sitting in the water dish <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, we're just not going to make it. I was all by myself saying, "Okay, God, we're going to commerce. I'd bought a house up there we the moving van came. I knew there was a group there because I checked the directory. The moving van came, left the phone was turned on, and I called the number in the directory, and this woman said hello, and I said, "Hello, is whoever there and I don't remember what his name was. And she said, Honey, no, he's been dead for three years. And I said, Oh, well, how about maybe, could you give me the name of another person in the group? And, and she said, No, honey, they're all dead or in the nursing home. <laughs> oh, my life flashed before my yeah. eyes. Literally, I thought, I wonder how fast I can get that moving van back here. <laughs> Buy my house back, start all over. I, this is a big mistake. And I said, Well, then, what about just an old drunk that's left over from the group? Because I knew there would have to be. <laughs> and there was. His name was Bill. And she said, Well, but you know he's a drunk. And I said, Yes, <laughs> it's the whole point. And um, <laughs> so I called Bill. And it turned out he lived half a block away. Now, in Commerce, Texas, that's, it, there's nothing too far away, but even it was just half a block away. And when I had first moved there, I had thought I was real worried about my anonymity. And uh, uh, this lady across the street saw Bill coming down, and she ran in my back door and said, Honey, that's a drunk. <laughs> if I had any worry about my anonymity, it was all over with and also, public information, CPC, it was all taken care of right there. <laughs> she took care of every bit of it. She was the biggest gossip in town. <laughs> um, so, Bill came down and had coffee. And I said, Bill, I'm, and I told him about, I told him my story, I told him the whole thing about moving up there, that I was intending on staying sober, and he was going to help me, and I hoped he wanted to sober up. And he said, oh, yes, I do, I do. (laughs) So for the next, well, from June 18th, for the next few weeks, we went in my little Pinto station wagon to meetings in Greenville, Sulphur Springs, Paris. Uh, We went over to Dallas. We went every night someplace to a meeting because we couldn't have a meeting of commerce because there was just me sober. I understood that much. Um now i had (laughs) i called the office you know this big book says at the at the end of the page 164 we would be glad to hear from you and i thought this is the time (laughs) i had no more idea than the man in the moon of what they did up at that office but i called and i said i was just going 90 miles an hour telling what had happened this lady said now honey my name is sarah and i'm an alcoholic and you have your big book there with you, don't you? And I said, yes. And she said, well, turn to the chapter called Working with Others. (laughs) And that's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what I did. Um, So poor old Bill, he was drug all over Northeast Texas. Well, (laughs) not all over, but within 20, 30, 40 miles, I guess, as far as we went was Paris and and, uh, Dallas. Um, We thought there was a meeting in Bonham, but we never could find it, and he would drink every single day. And, you know, in a hot little Pinto station wagon with that beer, (laughs) I think I just wore him down. Finally, on the 4th of July, he said, this is my sobriety date. I haven't had a drink today. And I said, well, hallelujah, we're going to have a meeting tomorrow night. talk to the minister and so we had the room when we were on Friday night and we started our meeting and I wrote a little letter to GSO the next day and the only reason I know is because on my 10th on the group's 10th anniversary I wrote and said could I have the archival information from the Commerce Group and here comes this little note that I wrote it said dear GSO and thank you for being." it was on a little sheet of paper like this thank you for being there And I I can remember writing that and thinking how grateful I was if I never ever met anybody else in AA anywhere, at least I knew that everybody was there. Um, Last night, the commerce group had, uh, last night was the first meeting of the commerce group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was elected secretary, treasurer, and GSR. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't tell him I was, that Bill was only sober that one day. <laughs> but I told him he couldn't have a job until he'd been sober longer. <laughs> and he was a bum. He was the one who was in the gun thing up on top of the airplanes in the Second World War. So our meetings consisted of we had our big book and we had our twelve and twelve, each one of us. And he, uh, I would say, okay, Bill, what what do you, we'd start in the usual way, and we'd pass the basket at the end of the meeting. But first, I'd say, what are you? T- what step are you working on, Bill? And he would tell me what step he was working on and i would say okay as soon as he started talking about um the bombardier and the second world war it was my turn to talk and when i was done the meeting was over (laughs) 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 and then there then we had a 12 step call we put his phone number in the paper because his sister was home all the time and she didn't care a bit about anonymity and in a small town you don't put your phone number in the paper unless you don't care it was the first name only, but it, and it was Alcoholics Anonymous, and her name was in there. And Bill took these calls, and then there was a lady came in named Lucy, and there was somebody named Charlie. Charlie worked at the uh, 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 Mexican restaurant up on Park Street, and um, and Charlie was dishwasher. I'll never. I was thinking about him the other day. Um, he came to the meeting, and he couldn't keep his teeth in his mouth. <laughs> They kept falling out because I guess they'd he'd lost weight or something. <laughs> so he'd sit there and he'd be talking and his teeth would go clack. <laughs> and Roger and all, you know a bunch of different people came in. I talked with uh, a woman who lives in Tyler now who came in to that group and she has her doctorate. She's in the fellowship in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and she was telling me Roger celebrated his, what, I don't know, 18th anniversary. Charlie is a, was always a certified public accountant. Uh, He's just kinda wet up to the ears in booze and working as a dishwasher at a Mexican restaurant. He lives in Fort Worth now and he's a certified public accountant. Um, I finished school. I got my graduate degree in art. I taught. My children, the youngest graduated from college, as I said, Uh, and she wrote to me uh, three years ago and said, Mama, I'm coming home. I graduated. She'd been, all she wanted to do was leave home, all she wanted to do. She said, when you move to New York, would you find a place that's big enough for me to have a room with you if I want it? And I said, yes. Uh, Thank you, God. Um, The middle one has a baby. And, uh, excuse me, he'll be four this month. He is not a baby. He'd be the first to tell me, my me, Pat, I am not a baby. Um, he's going to have a baby sister in September. And she called and asked me, Mama, can you be here? And I said, I don't know, I, but I will try. Um, my oldest lives in Houston. She was just married. We try to get together once a year. Um, Each one of those kids and I had a point at which there was no return. We had, I had to say to them, my life is because of Alcoholics Anonymous and when we would get to a confrontation that there wasn't any solution for, I would say, okay, here's a big book. If you want to know how we're going to work this out, the answer is in there in the steps and in the traditions and in the working of those. And so each one of them got a big book uh, over the years. One got hers when she was real young. <laughs> one got it when she was 17, and, and another one when she was 13. Um, last winter, I was in Houston, and each one of those girls has told me and shared with me about working the steps and working their program in their lives. The oldest has, I mean, the young, middle one, is in a group in her church that works the steps. But last winter, it was, our, uh, our family get-together was in Houston. And um, in October, uh, or late September, my oldest daughter had called and said, Mama, I wanted to talk to you about something. And it was late in the night, and she was talking, away, and all of a sudden I realized she was talking about her drinking. And she had had some incredible things to share, and I had to completely shut myself off from mother. Now, here's a young woman, she's 28 years old, and she's having a problem with her drinking. And I had to make myself really uh, disassociate and think of her as, as, a, as somebody, as a sponsee, uh, as somebody doing, a, I was doing a 12-step call on, and that was the end of it. I didn't hear any more about it. Um, but we all got to Houston at Christmas time, and uh, um, we had little Timothy, the grandson, and um, their dad was there, and his girlfriend, and my friend, my guy, and uh, all these kids, and it was, you know, a real mishmash, as I'm sure some of you can <laughs> appreciate. But she took me aside. I was supposed to go home on Wednesday. She said, Mama, can you stay until Friday? And I said, well, I, I have this time off. Um, is there, you know, what's, what's going on? And she said, well, I'd like you to come over to the LeBranche Street Group with me. I'm picking up my two-month chip. And I said, oh, yes. Um, so I did. I went over, and, uh, and she picked up her two-month chip. She, her sobriety date is October Uh, 28th of 1990. And uh, my sister, uh, I was speaking with her on the phone this morning. Um, She helped me make the decision to go to New York. She said, Patty, we have, we've been given our lives. The two of us didn't see each other for years and years and years. She sobered up in 1979, a month before her husband was killed. And uh, he was killed in a car wreck because, um, uh, well, he's drunk. He was drunk. And she called me up, and uh, I didn't realize she was sober. I didn't realize that she'd sobered up. My niece, two nieces, a cousin in Chicago, a cousin in Dallas, an uncle who was 77 at his death last month, was sober seven years, My family is being put back together by Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like the threads of this fellowship, with all of their varied origins, come together and and knit us back into one whole, beautiful, workable fabric. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is like a fabric to me. Each one of us is a strand. Each one of us comes like Mary and I. You know, we didn't know each other before a few months ago, but who knows where we'll meet again. I see people in this room that I've known ever since I've been sober. And when we last saw each other, we didn't know we'd meet here. I thank God for each one of you, for the fact that your lives brought us all here and those that aren't here are being touched where they are. This fellowship is only at risk if I'm not working my program, if we aren't working our programs a day at a time. The steps, the traditions, the concepts are all that's necessary, but they are necessary. Uh, by myself, I would be dead long time ago. My family would be in pieces. Um, and you know, my sponsor always says, Honey, just remember the source. <laughs> just remember the source. When I was sitting in the back of the room this morning, I was looking at these flowers and admiring how beautiful they looked. But it's kind of like being sober. Um, the, clo- the more I do it, the closer I am to living uh, in a day... On a daily, moment-by-moment basis, the more clearly I can see the details of the beauty. I come closer, and I live in the moment of looking at that bouquet of flowers, not just generally flowers. And the gift that God gives is just so apparent when I look out at you and all the details of all your lives. I honor your sobriety, and I thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me.